Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. told you the only food you should be eating is broccoli you wouldn't reply no (laughs) the only food you should eat isn't broccoli it's salmon right that's pure (laughs) insanity and you probably think what the heck is he talking about i'm gonna explain trust me but the the point is if someone told you that hey you should only be eating broccoli you're not going to reply with the only food that they should be eating. <laughs> it's not binary, right? There's not only two choices of food. Like, that's insane. You should say, if someone said that you should only be eating broccoli, your response should be, I think you're only eating mushrooms from the magic variety because you, sir, are straight tripping. Like, <laughs> you shouldn't be only eating one food. That is completely and utterly insane. However... When it comes to the topic of where you should get your influence as a creative person, often the the arguments get to be very dogmatic and very binary. Like they say, you should only be influenced by life. You should only be influenced by the creatives of yesteryear. You should only be influenced by this or that. And then you have the people that are, you should only be influenced by the cutting edge stuff. Like, no. It's clearly not any of those things. And just like a healthy, balanced diet when it comes to food, the same is true for your influences. Now, I am going to go through what I believe to be my healthy food balance of creative influences through the lens of the 90s food pyramid. Do you remember the 90s food pyramid? Holy crap. This was, the, man, the 90s. This was the age of blissful ignorance. Like, the, I, don't know, I don't know how old you are, but back in my day, we had a food pyramid, and it was a big pyramid triangle. And on the bottom, the base of the pyramid, this huge box, biggest box on this pyramid was carbs. Like, you got to get like six to 11 servings of pasta bagels, bread, like you've, and this, you know, like, uh, it was just pure bliss. 
this insanity that said you needed something like six to 11 servings of bread. And then they cut down to vegetables and fruit and then meat or protein and, and dairy and then fats and oils and sugar at the top. And honestly, if you went by this food pyramid, the ultimate food that pretty much covered all of your bases was pizza. In fact, the pyramid kind of looked like a pizza with the grains at the bottom. That's like the crust of the pizza. And then you go up and you've got, uh, you know, put some onions and green peppers on there. That's your veggies. You get some lots of cheese. That'll cover your whole friggin' dairy section. Get a little pepperoni. You got your protein. And then tomato sauce. By the way, one of the favorite things to talk about at school in the 90s was... You know, tomatoes aren't a vegetable. They're actually a fruit. Boom! Mind blown. That's what we used to talk about at school in the 90s. Very controversial, this tomato. And uh, yeah, oh, don't, I'm not going to forget about the oils and fats. Have you ever had pizza? It's got oil all over it. You got to dab it with a napkin if you're some kind of freak. Uh, But... But the truth is, I think the food pyramid in the 90s maybe was funded by Pizza Hut. And by the way, Pizza Hut was a glorious place in the 90s. Anyway, it was a totally different time. And if you read a bunch of books, you could get Pizza Hut. I don't know what they were doing. It was weird. Book it. Check it out. Um, Anyway, back to what we're talking about, which is a creative influences food pyramid for a healthy diet of influences, not taking too much for one place. And I want to go into all the ways that I think about and look for and research influences for my creative work that has struck a balance that I'm really happy with. But before we get into this, like I said, it's not binary. It's not this or that. You know, some people are going to be using samples of other people's music. Some people are going to be writing big, unique orchestral symphonies from scratch. There's no right way. It depends on who you are. And sometimes being really, really influenced and just slightly subverting it can be a really interesting thing to do. And something can be, something uh, even just as interesting can be charting unknown territories that we've never seen before. So there's all ways to think about it. I hope that this, my approach, stimulates your own thinking. Uh, And so that's what we're going to do. Let's get into the Creative Influences Food Pyramid. I'm calling it, You Art What You Eat. Huh? Anybody? No. Crickets. All right. Let's do it. Go to the bottom. Let's take it to the bottom. Sounds weird. (laughs) Sounds weird. But I'm at the bottom of the pyramid. That's what we're going to do. Let's get started with the, the grains. All right, so the first one, the bottom of that pyramid, that delicious crust, we're talking about, you know, the the free breadstick at the end of the pizza. If you're not someone who eats the breadstick at the end of the pizza, especially if there's dip. Okay, if there's no dip, I'll give you a little bit of a pass. But if you waste a breadstick when there's some nacho cheese right there, there's some garlic butter, there's some ranch dressing, even if there's even just some marinara, and you can't... Take it for the team. Get out of my house. Anyway, the bottom of the pyramid used to be bread. Uh, Used to want to get like six to 11 servings of that. This is the thing that you need to be taking from the most in your creativity. The thing that arguably, I would argue, should influence you more than anything else when it comes to your creative work is your life. 
your primary research. It means you're not taking from the thoughts and development and research from other people. You're take you're going out there and getting the research yourself and you're also pulling from your own experiences. And I like this idea also from Gary Goleman we've talked about on the show a few times that he actually goes, he's a comedian, he goes and lives for material. He'll actively go choose experiences, say yes to life, things that maybe he doesn't feel like doing, maybe things that are out of his comfort zone, maybe things that are not just work. You know, for me personally, I remember there was a time where I had a lot to, lot of work to do and my wife said, hey, why don't you take the afternoon off and come to the library with us? Um, someone from the zoo is going to be there and the kids want to go and you seem like you could use a break. And I kind of felt like, Ugh, I can't, you know, if I take a break that I'm just going to get behind. But instead I said yes. And when I went, they had a penguin at the library. And if I would have said no to life, I would have missed out on seeing a penguin at the library. You don't see that every day. But ultimately that led to one of my favorite analogies. And it's the one that I built my creative mornings talk around and uh, it was this idea that I felt like a penguin in a pigeon's world. Growing up, I felt like everybody was good at all the important stuff but me. Sports, math, school, home, all this stuff. I felt like I was just a chubby, awkward penguin stuck on the ground, bumbling like an idiot while everybody else was soaring. And it wasn't until I found my creativity that I realized that penguins fly too. They don't fly in the air like other birds. They're special. They fly in the water. And if you've ever seen a penguin on land, they're really bumbling and stupid and funny um, and cute. But when they dive into the water, they're as graceful as eagles. And when I found creativity, it was like finding my water for the first time. And I was gliding and I could do things other birds couldn't do. And I, and I only created that analogy because I went to the zoo that day. I lived that experience and the zookeeper talked about how penguins fly too, but not in the air, but in the water. And, uh, I wouldn't, and, and I, so I would have missed that. Right. And so I highly believe in taking your, your, your biggest influences from your own lived experiences. And so one of the things you got to do, even just extreme, extreme emotions, extreme feelings, extreme experiences, those, uh, those should be setting off your spidey sense, setting off your influence metal detector, and you should put them in your pocket for later. Uh, my, my fridge story from a few weeks back was like that when I had to move my fridge and I almost killed myself moving my fridge cause it was a abnormally heavy fridge. And I did some posts on Instagram about that. Another analogy that came from life from doing stuff. We were redirect, redirect, redirecting, redecorating, uh, redirecting my speech to say the right word, redecorating my house, which I didn't want to do. I'm renovating. Redoing our kitchen, all this crap. I hate doing stuff like that. Really what I want to do all the time is just make, 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 make. But you can't just keep making. You've got to start taking. <laughs> and it rhymes. <laughs> you got to start taking influence from life. You gotta, And that requires having life experiences and going out there and getting primary research. So that's the bread. That's the bulk. 
of your influences, I think, need to come from your own lived experiences. But that's not all. I'm not one of these binary people that says, oh, you just got to eat broccoli nonstop. You know, you, there's, a, there's many foods to take from, and, and lots of the foods come from other people's art, which I think is a, a big source of inspiration and influence that you should be taking, and we're going to get to that next. Before we get to that, I just want to mention also, not only are you just mining experiences and feelings, but if you're an illustrator, then that primary research looks like live drawing and um, uh, life drawing and, and going out there and not just looking at pictures on the internet because a photo is not as secondary research unless you took the photo. And so going out there and collecting as much material as you can, it's one thing I started to do on walks is take photos of foliage that kind of felt like there's there's certain things that almost feel like my work, my style in the real life. And this weird life imitates our imitates life kind of thing of I'll go see some leaf that I'm like, ooh, that looks like a leaf I would draw, but I've never drawn that leaf and take photos of it as primary research that I'm taking from real life. And so that's another example of how do you take things directly from life? How do you take inspiration? My wife, she's been thinking about uh, some new jewelry and stuff that she could make influenced by her garden. She loves taking patterns from, let's say, the inside of a uh, tomato and recreate them in embroidery. And she's so good. She's taught me so much about primary research. She had a better education in this side of things than I did, um, where she spent a lot of time learning about that kind of process. And I've learned a lot from her in this area. All right, number two in the pyramid, we're going to say it's fruit. And the fruit is going to be other mediums outside of your primary medium. So if you're an illustrator, these are things like music and photography and film and all kinds of other things uh, and vice versa and what have you, if you will. Here's my, uh, here's some of the ways that's worked out in my life in a very inspiring way. Uh, I'm an and I want to talk through the lens of being an illustrator first. So as an illustrator, one of the things that highly influences my illustration is photography, especially like experimental, uh, psychedelic or uh, surrealistic photography has been a big influence over the years. And I've created pen boards on Pinterest. That's just all photography that feels the way that I want my illustration to feel. So there's all this like mixing of, you know, I, I like when there's the double exposure. I love like, uh, I've seen like a lot of um, like moments of capturing fire and like a lighter with the sparks and how magical it looks, photos of clouds. Like there's so much of that stuff that I will take inspiration from and influence from. And it's been very interesting to pull from fields other than my own because I think uh, not necessarily drawing those f photos, but stylistically, I think that you can pull from those, bite on those influences from other mediums 
in more direct ways than you can from your own. And it's because of that leap in medium, you're going to see uh, it's going to, you're going to have to reinvent it, even if you're capturing the essence or the vibe of something else. And I think for me, that's been really uh, powerful. And I've done it too in my own in creative business. I've looked at as a, as a creative business, I've looked at businesses in the financial sector. I've looked at them in the information sector, all kinds of different places. And I think if it's not, if they're not in direct competition to you, I think it can be interesting to pull in heavier ways than you can in your own medium. Two other ways that I do this. One is I've created playlists that are, this is how I want my illustration to feel. And I like this kind of synesthetic uh, leap where we're taking like sound and saying, I want my pictures to look like this sounds. That's been huge for me. I've thought a lot about how uh, when there's, I've told people over and over, I want my illustration to feel like a stop frame animation of flowers blooming from seed. There's something about that that is how that blossoming, that yes to life, life breathing, pulsing through my illustration, especially in a static image, capturing that kind of motion is very interesting to me and it, and it fills me with life. And, I, and when I see that kind of thing, it makes me say, yes, when I saw... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for shouting at you, but I got excited about it. Uh, there's the, um, the, the god from Princess Mononoke when he's walking through the forest and everything's blossoming and blooming around him. Or when Totoro from uh, another Hayao Miyazaki movie, they're planting the seeds and the music's playing and they're doing this upward motion with their hands and it's causing these seeds, these trees to just blossom in rapid rates. There's something about that. You'll see that kind of feeling in my illustration. There's a lot of blossoming and blooming and bursting with life that happens in my creative work and that comes from mediums outside of my own. Another way that I'll do it, so I'll do it with playlists on Spotify. You know, different seasons of my life, the playlists have looked different. You know, early uh, in 2011, so I guess it was whatever. Uh, <laughs> I was very into melancholy at that time. Like I was just soaking up my melancholy vibes, my kind of not scary but spooky vibes of, ooh, there's mysterious things happening beyond the visual. Still inspired by all that, but that was huge for me. And I was finding these like piano songs that were very somber and sad with a little bit of mystery and weird. Um, and I was way into that. And I wanted my illustrations to look like that. And I started thinking about how do you make illustrations that feel like that? And I was making a lot of stuff that was like hidden characters, eyeballs and tree trunks and under porches and what have you. And I, I had this drawing of a little house and a little character like writing out, like writing his di in his diary. And around his house were like three or four characters characters like looking in but he didn't know it and there's something about that that feels like life to me I'm very interested in you know are there conscious beings on this on the other side of our uh, visual perception what a weirdo anyway playlists on Spotify can you put together a 10 song playlist of what you want your work to feel like unless you're a musician and therefore, whatever, maybe you need to get into illustration. Um, maybe you need to dive deep into that and get a taste for that. It might influence, it might help you see your craft from a distance and see new things that you hadn't seen before. On top of that, one of the things I do before I make this podcast sometimes, or even before I make illustration, is I will do 
priming that actors do. I've mentioned this on the show before, but this idea of like, what are the scenes in movies that really moved me, that got to into my core as a creative person. I'm getting into that feeling of this is why I'm alive. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm about. This is what my vision is for life. This is my why. There are scenes from movies that will tap me into that right away. You know, I love Moana. You've heard me talk about it a million times, but that's a, there's a scene where her grandma's spirit comes back and reminds her who she is, and she realizes the call isn't coming from outside. It's coming from inside. It is me. I am Moana. How many times have I said that on the show? <laughs> uh, but I love that because I a lot of my work is about self-actualization and I, building your identity and finding out who you really are. Like that's, those are huge things to me. And that priming, those watching these scenes, this is, so actors will do this before a scene. They'll prime with music or they'll prime with a, a, a piece of, you know, secondary research from another film that gets them into that mood and that mode and they'll create from that space. And I will do that even though I'm not in that field. So, number two is fruit, the other mediums, the fruit of others' looms, if you will. Uh, other mediums' looms. <laughs> I, should, I should pull some of these good quotes and put it at the start of this episode to get you into it. The fruit of another's looms. That'll get people interested. Maybe that's the title of this episode. Your vegetables. You gotta eat your veggies, your Brussels sprouts, your cucumbers, your capsicums, your courgettes, your aubergines, right? You gotta get into it. The vegetables. Uh, I love some vegetables. What are your creative vegetables? I believe they are your acquired tastes. They're the things you gotta eat whether you like it or not. The challenging stuff. Are you actively making part of your diet? I think it's very important for a well-balanced creative diet to be engaging in stuff that you're not sure if you like right away, especially from sources that you really trust, people who you believe have better taste than you. Hopefully you are humble enough to know that there are people out there that have better taste than you. For me personally, this looks like, you know, every few years I end up at LCAF, the London Comics Festival that Nobrow puts on, and I love going there for illustration influence because I see so many things that are so cutting edge and different and they're pushing the boundaries and you know it's all a bunch of young people coming out of college and they just I just get filled up by being in that zone. And I, there's not usually anything directly that I am directly influenced by, but that energy and the space and seeing how things are changing and moving ends up somehow, some way, making it back to my practice. It also just gets me excited about making stuff. In terms of music, I still read pitchfork.com. Got some qualms about it, not always happy about it, but it's one of the places I discover new music. And one thing I do is I know, you know, and I've kind of made some rules for myself. Like, uh, if it's the type of music I like and they give it best new music, I'll definitely check it out. If it's a type of music that I don't traditionally like, 
but they give it over a nine out of a 10, then I require myself to listen to it just to eat my vegetables, just to see what, you know, I think the people at Pitchfork know more about music than I do. They just do. Like I, I don't always trust them. I don't always agree with them. There's a lot of things I like. There's some things I liked for a long time that took them a while to get on the bandwagon with, and that's fine. But I do think there's a level of humility. There's a level of acquired taste. There's a level of challenging that you need to be consuming if you are going to keep your influences and your creativity as fresh and healthy as you want it to be. So identify where are the places that you trust to humble yourself before, get some acquired tastes. Are you digesting stuff from your medium and stuff from other creative mediums that doesn't go down the drain pipe so easily on first pass? I think it's a really big, uh, big thing to keep in that taste fresh. You know, it, the, nothing kind of ex exhilarates my creativity like, you know, having to get into something. You know, most of the things that are my favorite foods are things I didn't like the first time I tasted them. I'm a huge olive and IPA and scotch person. I don't know why that's me. Maybe I just hate myself. Maybe it's some kind of self-punishment or self-harm eating all this stuff that smacks you in the face, but maybe it's just ADHD. I'm just bored and I need to feel something while I'm alive. Man, this disgusting scotch makes me feel alive, but I love it. I don't know, but I think it's important to, uh, you know, I was just reading a post from Lisa Congdon who this week we're doing a show together. I don't know if tickets are still available if while you're listening to this, but if it's if it, this is the week that it came out, the the week of the 26, 2019, there might still be some tickets. Go to creativepeptalk.com slash tour to get yours today. I'll put the sales voice off for a minute. Just say, Lisa did a post about openness to experience. That is uh, what the neuroscientists say is the key to a creative mind. And if you constantly have a closed mind, you know, there's people I will say, hey, I think you might like this song and I put it on and within three seconds, the first note is played. Just there's some vibe that, you know, ruffled their feathers. They're instantly like, nope, not interested. And that kind of attitude is, the, is a surefire way to get your taste to go stale and for you to be out of the game long term. So you gotta stay openness, open to experience. And that is uh, required when acquiring new tastes. Eat your creative vegetables. All right, number four is the dairy section. Uh, we're going to call this the current stuff, the cool stuff. Your peers and heroes that are doing stuff right now that you're excited about. Now, one of the well, first of all, why did I call this dairy? Why is that the one I connected to dairy? I, it made sense in my mind. In the Midwest, there's Dairy Queen. They have hot eats, cool treats, cool stuff. Dairy? <laughs> doesn't make any sense, but it's the cool stuff, man. It's the ice cream of the food pyramid. Uh, <laughs> so... All right, the current stuff, the cool stuff, it's easy to be influenced by this stuff. One thing that I've seen happen 
too often, and this happened to me for a while, is that you eat so much dairy that you dairy out. You get a dairy aversion. You develop a dairy allergy. When And I told you early on in my career uh, that I was too influenced by current stuff, and I felt like I needed to dive deeper and make my work more unique and more my own. And actually, I heard the same experience from Fran, who was on this show uh, just last week. She did an she did a YouTube video about her early days in illustration and how she originally was too influenced by some of her heroes. She had she hadn't diversified her influences that much, and she was especially influenced by one particular illustrator and the kind of ways that was a problem and how she needed to find her own path. And I had a similar experience, and most creative people I know start that way. A few weeks back, I had Ghost Shrimp do a little segment on this show. He's the original background designer for Adventure Time. And uh, he talked about the same thing, is that he sees a lot of people biting his style, often his students. Um, but he also knows that that's usually the way that great artists start, is biting someone's style and, and flying too close to the sun, as my friend Justin Mazel has called this practice. And sometimes what happens is you eat too much dairy till you get an aversion to it, and then you quit taking influence for the people that are making stuff that's exciting you today. And I think that's the fastest track to burnout and disillusion. I think there's something beautiful and something, uh, th- there's some kind of sustainability that happens when you keep your ear to the ground and your, your eyes to the page and, you, and you're staying interested in the, in the climate of your uh, ecosystem and your industry, right? And I think that the best way I've seen this happen is this idea of Seniors from Brian Eno, who I heard from heard about this from Austin Cleon. He talks about how we need to quit thinking about the lone genius and embrace the idea of the seniors, the collective genius of a movement, of a particular collective or a group of people. And one that I'm very inspired by right now that I just think is so egoless, which sounds ridiculous considering who I'm about to mention, um, but I do think he's maybe turning a new leaf. I don't know. Uh, Kanye West, his little seniors that he has going on with uh, Francis and the Lights and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, and then maybe in a lesser degree but still connected to that is Chance the Rapper, and there's this uh, there's a lot of cross-pollination. James Blake, I would agree, would be in that cr- crowd of people. There's a lot of cross-pollination happening of creative taste and influences. And there's this very interesting thing that happened where, um, you know, there was auto-tune and then there was Justin Vernon layering vocals with uh, different approaches, you know, falsetto and, and what have you. I don't know all the terminology, low voices, high voices, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, layering them all up and, and auto-tune. And then Francis and the Lights, they develop this plug-in where you can just sing and it will automatically refract your voice into high and low at the same time. And they were recording like that and doing that with Kanye and, and Justin and then Uh, Justin went with his producer and they developed one that could work in real time so that you could do that in live recordings. And that really influenced his 33 and God album. And so the thing that's, and, and you can, and you know that 
uh, from listening to these people that they're in a season of life where they're really trying to let go of the ego and collaborate and not get so caught up on credit. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this in illustration recently is I've been really interested in kind of, I feel like my style, a lot of my peers for a, a while were uh, a lot more decorative and a lot more beautiful and floral and rainbows and all that. And I, I like all that stuff. It does it for me for whatever reason. I like this cutesy, uh, happy, it, it feels like my yes to life kind of energy. But then recently I've felt like it's missing a flavor of kind of boyish cool, playful cool. There's something about me that I don't find edgy stuff cool or exciting or invigorating to me. I don't like it when it's genuinely edgy, but I like it in a, I like a boyish, playful edgy, like snakes and skulls and swords. Like it's funny, but also kind of cool. And I found myself gravitating towards wearing shirts that felt like that. And so I started noticing, I have a few friends, people like uh, Colin Walsh, um, John Contino, uh, there, there's a few other people that Jack Teagle, um, Sam Bosma, th these people that are doing Luke Pearson, these people that are doing boyish, edgy, playful, edgy. Uh, and I want to influence that with my own, like, yes to life style of, um, exploding floral stuff. And I kind of have been thinking about how that feels similar and it's akin to um, Kanye, Bonavere, that kind of thing. And I feel like if there's a way of approaching your influences and what you're excited about, what your peers and heroes are doing in a way that's uh, collaborative, egoless, seniors driven. And, uh, and I think that often looks like collaborating, actually collaborating with those people, which is something I'm interested in doing. I think that some really incredible creative work can come from that. And I think the only way you know that is get in touch with your market, get in touch with your niche, get in touch with who has, you know, I heard, um, I think it was Ron Funches, the comedian, say that your influences, especially your current influences, shouldn't be showing you anything new. They should reveal things that you didn't know about yourself, things that were always true about you. And I think a great influence uh, is that when you get really – and I think that's one of the things that happens when early artists in their career start biting other people's styles because – they actually do have something deeply in common with the taste and sensibility of their heroes. And so when they've had this realization, this self-actualization of, oh my gosh, I see myself mirrored in that person's work, there's this, uh, there's this exciting fire that happens that manifests in re replicating and I don't think you should stay there. I think that we should have grace for those people. I think some pe sometimes those people need a nudge to say, hey, you need to diversify your influences and dig into your own uh, bread. Dig into that bread, the, the, the crust of the pyramid called life, primary research. You need to get into that zone. Um, but I, I don't think it's all bad either. Um, so yeah, that's the dairy. Hot eats, cool treats, cool stuff. Current stuff, peers, seniors. That's a summary of <laughs> step four. Let's go to five. By the way, just to clarify, I don't mean, you know, taking someone's drawing and uh, redrawing it and calling it your own. 
Uh, I don't think that that's ever okay. Now, I do think that from that to, uh, you know, having the vibe of one of your heroes show up through your work and the gray scale between that and, you know, and direct copying, there is, there's 99 shades of gray between those two things. And I think that uh, there's a there there's not going to be a dogmatic binary way of saying what's okay and what's not it's going to be a case by case basis and um it, it's going to be something that we're going to have to navigate as a creative community but i would encourage you if when you find yourself in a position which i have many times um with an artist taking too liberally in your point of view from your work that you would handle that with grace uh and, and approach it privately privately, hopefully, um, give them some help in helping them see your influences. We're going to get to that in a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that we can approach this with grace. Some people are genuinely, um, maliciously copying artists, but often it's coming from a, a pretty, pretty great excited place. And I think that we should be stewarding that excitement, of creativity and, and watching creativity flourish in our world, which is something I think we all want if you're a creative person. All right. Take it to the episode. Yeah. Number five is the meat. The meat. It, meat. The meat nah. or the protein if you're vegan. Meat. I'm sure there's some kind of way we could take this analogy and make it vegan. I don't know, but you need your protein regardless. And this is about secondary research that is either old or really obscure for one reason or another. And uh, I think that the meat, the, the, the bulk of your secondary research should come from these places, unexpected places, old places. My buddy, my bro B-Teeth, Dan Christofferson, he's highly inspired. He's an illustrator. He's, a, he's highly inspired by the kind of mythical drawings of Mormonism and also other cultures like going back through religious ephemera from yesteryear where he, you know, was lifting heavily from mythical drawings and it's it was so weird when he when I first came in contact with his work I thought man this is so peculiar and different I've never seen anything like it and to watch that kind of meat of his old obscure secondary research become the dairy for other people you know current influences and watching this thing go from being this highly personal thing to a movement of sorts where we're referencing old material and mixing that with graphic language to all the way up to trends. But you see this in fashion, you know, fashion often is uh, less about anything new and more about fresh takes on old things. And this is where taste comes back up. So your own intuition, your creative intuition, your sensitivity, your sensibility, that's your taste. And you need to use like that metal detector, that thing that says, this is good, that's bad. That's your creative intuition. And go back through the past and find things from a long time ago that 
that are lighting you up now that you have to use your taste is that splice between timely and timeless and if you can use that as a navigation system you can go back and mine things from long time ago and probably take a little bit more liberally than you can from the current stuff the dairy stuff um, often because a lot of that old stuff doesn't light other people up it needs freshening up it's only because you have such a deep sensitivity to this taste that you can even register those flavors. Um, recently, I was listening to an interview with Tyler, the creator, and he was talking about how everything that was lighting him up was the were chord-heavy songs from Britain in the 80s. And he was referencing all these bands that I'd never heard of before. But to him, that was where all of these exciting sounds were coming from on his new album, Igor, which is fantastic. And so it's about how do you go on a research mission? How do you uh, dive deeper than your peers and find more obscure references and uh, older things that are that for some reason, one reason or another, are all of a sudden feeling fresh again? Uh, you know, I have a lot of influence in illustration that comes from things that that, you know, I know, I don't know, hardly anybody knows about these people. Things like uh, Remy Charlip. Remy Charlip is one of my biggest inspirations, the way that he thinks through his drawings, or he used to, He uh, that, that, that was huge for me. Uh, Carly Reich, who's a Hungarian artist, illustrated something like 500 books. I don't know anybody that's uh, a fan of him that even knows about his work, but his stuff looks so current, even though it came from 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, but you gotta go out there and dig deep. Again, let's go to Austin Kleon. He has some really good advice on this one. He talks about creating your creative family tree. So instead of just sticking in that cool treats dairy area <laughs> with your uh, current favorites, how do you take your current favorites and find out who are their favorites and who are their favorites favorites and create this family tree and get keep pulling the thread until you get to some old obscure stuff that still lighten up that spidey sense, that metal detector, that taste, and start pulling from these older influences. I think that can be a, a gold mine for creative influence. I think a great example of this is Dark Crystal. Like uh, Netflix funding this Dark Crystal series, which by the way, freaking just had me so engrossed. I was like in dark crystal world hardcore when I was watching that, binging that series. And, you know, with things like uh, Game of Thrones and, and, the, and the fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons kind of coming into the mainstream vernacular and zeitgeist of creative and current mainstream culture, like dark crystals, something from the 80s that all of a sudden feels super fresh and interesting. And uh, they capitalize on that kind of obscure thing that is a lesser known picture from the Henson estate and legacy. Number six, our final point. We got to the top of the pyramid, the fats, the sugars, the salts. That stuff that you want to take, with, you know, just take a pinch of it. Don't overdo it. That is our guilty pleasures. And I want to remove the guilt, remove the shame. I believe that you should be really paying attention to your guilty pleasures. I went to a restaurant called, I believe it's called Emmy Squared in Brooklyn while I was there. And they have this 
burger called the El Mac. And it was seriously one of the best burgers I ever ate. It freaking, wow, oh, there were so many things, so many flavors that I never tasted before. And I was freaking freaking out about it. And uh, it's called the El Mac. Why? Because it's kind of a take on the Big Mac. It's a fancy take on the Big Mac, the El Mac. And uh, it's elevating a guilty pleasure. And I think there's so much creativity to be mined from our guilty pleasure. Here's why I think, first and foremost, that you should lean in, not away from your guilty pleasures. So I think they have the most to teach you about your personal taste. When I was struggling early on to find my own voice, one of the things I did was I tried to get back to my visceral taste. What were the things that I engaged in? Now, this is kind of the opposite of the acquired taste guilty pleasures. Acquired tastes are often you trying to be something that you're not right away. And I think there's good things that happen in that process, like I recounted earlier in this episode. But I think ultimately, a very important way to kind of recalibrate your compass when you've been lost in the building of your persona based on acquired taste and outside influences and cultural zeitgeists and influencers and what have you, I think what you got to do is you got to get back in touch with that in your gut visceral thing. And I started listening, what was, I tried listing and, and, uh, collecting the things that hit me on a visceral level that I didn't have a choice about, that guilty pleasures are things that you wish didn't light you up, but they do. You've got those taste buds. It's like eating something and you've got a taste for uh, a, a particular hop, like IPA. That's kind of a, that's kind of one for me. Like I, the IPAs have kind of uh, gone out of style. They're almost embarrassing to order, it, it feels, uh, as a beer because it seems like you're trying to be cool, but I like that hoppiness. And I can't help it. I've got those taste buds on my tongue, baby. So I can't help it. I got I to gotta taste that. Um, and, and I think guilty pleasures are about things that are doing it for you that you wish weren't doing it for you. But it's telling you something about the taste buds that you have. And uh, I went through a season where when I was trying to get dig deeper past this persona that I'd built around indie music with the indie rock coloring book and kind of being cool, even though it was stuff that I did like. And I went through a season of like going back to my childhood, going back to my my past um that was, you know, when I was less cool or whatever, and trying to think about what were things that just lit me up, made me cry, made me laugh, made me feel emotions before I knew that they were quote unquote good or bad art. Uh, you know, there's some reason why I, I'm as a as a move of solidarity. I'm just gonna say it, okay, to help you embrace your guilty pleasures. I love Katy Perry's firework. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that. It's ridiculous, Andy. Own it. I will put that on a running playlist. When that bad tune comes on, oh my gosh, I'll speed up a little bit. Gets my best. I just start lighting it up like a firework, baby. I don't know why, but if there's something about it, and I think there's something about, uh, often with guilty pleasure, there's something that's going to teach you about the mechanics of creativity, the math, the science behind story or sound or what have you. If it's eliciting an involuntary response from within, there's a mechanical lesson usually within that. You know, a joke has a has mechanics and frameworks and particular ways of how do you get, you know, for instance, a joke, if it's going to work, the best jokes usually have the funniest, uh, most punchy 
word at the end. That's the punchline. If you can get the punchline as far to the end of your little dialogue as possible, the funnier it'll be. And so if you can actually learn from and be influenced by your guilty pleasures, you're going to learn something about the mechanics of how to create things that get those visceral responses that are very powerful. You know, one of the things you, I heard, um, uh, what's his name? The show notes are extensive on this episode. Uh, He's one of my favorite comedians, and his name is... Do you like those? I mean, one of the things I try to do is not cut out all of me thinking, because I feel like it tells you that I'm here. I'm authentically present with you in your ears right now. I'm I'm bringing it. Steve Coogan, that's his name. Steve Coogan. Uh, he was, I think it was on Mark Maron's podcast, talking about why he starts with, why he started his career with impressions and why so many comedians start their career with impressions is because a good impression makes us laugh and a good impression is a clear identifiable skill, which in the world of creativity, that's often all you have to get through the door in terms of pure merit, breaking through on the back of your merit. I, I see so many creative people hide behind the avant-garde, hide behind the subjective because they're afraid that they don't have what it takes. And so they, they pretend like, oh, you just don't get it. But the truth is they don't know if they have it. And so what I highly recommend finding those things, finding those mechanical things. What are the, what are the things where you can prove your worth and just bust your ass growing those chops, baby? <laughs> uh, but Steve Coogan talks about that. Impressions. That's one of the ones. It's just a, such a clear, identifiable, uh, objective skill. And when you find someone has a great impression, like that'll get your foot through the door, right? So, you know, Jim Carrey started almost completely on impressions. He's amazing at impressions. And it came uh, to a point where he got his foot in the door all the way and he just cut him because he felt like, yeah, it's kind of hacky in a way. So just cut them, right? So you can always do that too. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is like just the mechanics of a song. Like we like... Uh, how a song builds up, feels like it's going to drop, doesn't drop, creates this tension, then has this big drop later, and it it manipulates our emotions. And I think if you're in the business of creativity, you should at least know the rules, and then you can break them later if you don't want them or if you want to do something uh, – you know, that pushes the limits and, and doesn't is less hacky. But I think starting within understanding how these things work is incredibly powerful. And one of the ways to get in touch with that is to lean into your guilty pleasures. You know, one of the other things you can do, I was listening to uh, the creative processing podcast with Ryan Johnson and he's, uh, uh, I'm, well, it's actually Joseph Gordon-Levitt's podcast and he had Ryan Johnson on and Ryan Johnson talks a lot about uh, genre and how every one of his movies, whether it's Brick, uh, Brick was a film de, de noir. Uh, I'm from Indiana, okay? <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't pretend that I am not. Um, uh, Brothers Bloom was uh, another genre movie. I can't remember, but uh, Looper is a classic sci-fi movie. His new movie is a whodunit movie, Knives Out, and uh, each one was really trying to get into the mechanics of a genre, learn how it's done, and then elevate it like the L Mac. 
do something, take all the expectations, deliver on them, but do so in a subversive way so that it's both surprising but inevitable, which is what you want an ending to feel like. And so you'll, you're going to learn so much. If you will not just – like if you will – I think uh, – I've always thought about how if I was a musician – I would try to make music like Katy Perry for a season of time or, or Taylor Swift or, or what have you and just think, how do I make the most cliched, not to um, keep digging myself a hole, if somebody is uh, friends with or works with uh, Taylor Swift and Katy Perry. It used to be on this podcast, I could just you know say whatever the heck I wanted because nobody was listening, but now people will come out of the woodworks like, yeah, I work with this person at Pixar, did it? And I'm like, oh, yikes, I'm not going to... I promise you, I will not let that stop me from putting out my points of view. However, things that are considered more popular, um, more formulaic, uh, I suggest if you're a musician, go through a season of making that stuff. You don't even have to release it if you don't want to, but just try to figure out how do they, how are they getting those results? How do you make something that's catchy? How, what would I make if I didn't use my uh, if I didn't use my highfalutin taste and I just use my visceral taste to make stuff, what would I make? I think that can get some really interesting results. And that is the value of leaning into the sugar, baby. Get into the sugar and get into those guilty pleasures. You need them. You can't ignore them. They're at the top of that pyramid. If you don't take anything from this episode other than just this one thing I'll be okay with it and here it is I said it at the start of this episode you art what you eat meaning you make what you put in and I think that one of the reasons why sometimes people's work gets to be too much like another person's or too much like a trend or too much like just not like themselves is that they're not living that it's not just about eating creative work it's about eating consuming experiencing life and that openness to experience it's not just about openness to new acquired tastes when it comes to creative work it means saying yes to life you know one of the things that i've noticed is i've i got off the phone with this uh, I don't know, I was paying a bill of some kind and uh, they said, have a safe weekend. And I just thought, no, I'm not going to have a safe weekend. I'm going to have a brave weekend. I'm going to have a weekend where I go out there and do things out of my comfort zone, do things that I don't feel like doing, do things that I've never done before that I'm not sure that I will like doing because I want to eat things that are different so that I can art things that are different. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we've got to be consuming a diverse range of things and diverse range of experiences and new stories, new flavors, new experiences if we want to create things that are new. And so if you don't take anything from this, all these different opinions that I have on what makes a healthy, balanced diet of influence, take this one thing away, that I believe that you can't make your best work creating all the time. I had this realization earlier this year that I have this obsession with doing the best that I can do. And I... For the past 10 years, I've equated that with doing the most that I can do. 
But the fact of the matter is best and most are not the same thing. In fact, I would say in some ways they are paradoxical. They are, they are at odds with each other because often when you're doing the most you can do, you can't do the best that you can do. When you're creating nonstop and you're sacrificing your life in the process, your work, you're doing the most, but you're not doing the best. When I was doing a jog uh, on the beach, we were doing a vacation, two-week vacation, no arting whatsoever, only eating, eating delicious, delicious food from New York City and the Jersey Coast and uh, just experiencing and I'm jogging on the coast and I'm running and I decide the last jog that I have, I'm just going to push myself and uh, run for an hour plus all the way down to this lighthouse. And right as I get to the end, uh, there's some signage on the road and the first sign says, slow down. And the next sign, just a further, a little bit further down says, share the road. And it shows, you know, uh, a bike. So the cars should share the road with bikes. And I thought, you know what, I think that's going to be my mantra for the rest of 2019. Slow down and share the road. Slow down on the creating. Speed up on the life. Share the road. Bring people along with you. Create little seniuses. Inspire each other. Remember that it's about people and relationship first. That's why you're making art. And that ultimately... Art that lacks life, art that comes from a place that's not from your life, art that lacks life is dead. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Chris Graham of Chris Graham Mastering and the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast for audio assistance. Thanks to all of you for uh, tuning in every week. We love you. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. <laughs>